The following recording is from Parramatta Christian Church. We pray that this message inspires you in your walk with Christ. Thank you, church. You may take your seat. Well, the average person apparently speaks 16,000 words per day, which equates to... 112,000 words per week, and check this out, nearly 6 million words per year. Who would agree that's a lot of talking, and that's a lot of words. Now, if you were to scan the entire human language for the most beautiful, appealing word, I wonder what word you would choose. Maybe some of you tonight would choose the word love. There's good biblical warrant for choosing the word love, or maybe... You would choose the word peace. Again, there's biblical warrant for choosing peace. Shalom is such a rich word. But if you were to ask me what I think the most dazzling, beautiful word there is in the whole human language, I would choose the word at the center of this sermon tonight, which is what? Grace. Grace. If you are joining us for the first time, you join us midway through a sermon series that we've entitled The God You're Looking For. And it's been a wonderful exploration of God. It's always a good idea to take our eyes off ourselves and just feast on God. And we've been doing that in this series as we've been thinking about God's omniscience and how he's always with us, that he's the God who laughs with us and weeps with us. He's our refuge. And tonight we're going to be thinking about the God who is gracious, the God who is full of grace. You know, a number of years ago in Britain, there was a conference held. And at this conference, a number of scholars and church leaders and theologians gathered. And one of the themes at the conference was discussing the uniqueness of Jesus and the uniqueness of Christianity. In particular, the question on the table that they were thinking about was what makes Christianity unique and special amongst world religions? And so various scholars put forward their ideas. One scholar said it's the incarnation, God becoming human. Another scholar said, no, no, I think it's the resurrection, the Son of God coming back from the dead. But as they discussed these wonderful things, they realized that some other faiths some religions have similar ideas, not exactly the same ideas, of course, but similar ideas. And so at this conference, they couldn't reach a verdict until C.S. Lewis walked into the room. And he was running a bit late. He got there. He said to his friend, what are they discussing? And when he found out, apparently he stood up in the presence of all these leaders and scholars and theologians and said, oh, you want to know what makes Christianity so special and unique? Well, that's easy it's grace, he said. They debated, they discussed, and they all agreed, yes, C.S. Lewis is absolutely right. Grace is what makes Christianity special and unique. And it's so true. Grace is what makes Christianity Christianity. Christianity is Christianity because of grace, which of course means if we lose sight of grace, we lose Christianity. And sadly, for some Christians and many churchgoers, they lose sight of the wonder and the beauty of grace. And often at times, I too forget about God's mind-blowing and heart-exploding grace. And so this sermon, as we think about the God you're looking for is full of grace, is dedicated to discovering 
and rediscovering the wonder of grace. And so join me as we think about a three-step outline as we just explore the God of all grace. So here's the first step. I'm calling it the bed of grace, the bed of grace. You know, at home, obviously, you have a bed. Hopefully, you do. And your bed, for some of you, you, there are four legs on the bed. If you don't have four legs on the bed, you're probably not going to sleep all that well. And it's similar with grace. There are four legs or four foundations to understanding biblical grace. If you have these legs in place, then you'll understand grace. You'll be gripped by grace, and you'll enjoy God's grace. And so this is the first leg of this bed of grace. It's the pagan heart of man. The pagan heart of man. Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 9. This is what we read. And by the way, it's so awesome to be speaking live. <laughs> oh, you can laugh at me. I think you're allowed to laugh. Wasn't that funny? Okay. It's nice to be speaking live. Um, Jeremiah, let's go back to the text. Jeremiah 17, 9. The human heart is the most deceitful of all things. Did you hear that? Do you believe it? He continues, and desperately wicked. Now, the human heart is not only wicked, that would be wicked enough, but it's wickedly wicked. That's what it means. Desperately, deeply, comprehensively wicked, beyond description. In fact, God, through Jeremiah, poses this question. He says, who really knows how bad it is? And of course, the implied answer is, no one other than God. If, if we knew the extent of the wickedness of our heart, I think we would just crumble in a heap. I'm not sure we would be able to get back up again. And God in his grace, I think, reveals to us bit by bit the wickedness of our heart. But he knows how intrinsically wicked our hearts are, and every human heart is. You see, many modern people, because of their achievements in science and the material prosperity, foul to see the deep depravity and corruption of their heart. Uh, you know, granted, people, modern people say, yeah, I, I know I'm not perfect. Uh, I have some moral vices, but generally I'm a decent person, right? People have probably said that to you. People have said that to me. And when they say that, of course, they fail to realize that they're in need of saving, they fail to realize that, as John 3, 36 says, if you're not trusting in Jesus, you are under the wrath of God. The first step, church, in believing and receiving the grace of God is actually accepting the biblical message about the corruptness and vileness of the human heart, that every single human heart outside of Jesus is completely pagan, which means completely lost. So that's the first leg. You encourage, a bit depressing so far, I know, but we've got more depressing material to get through. Here's the second leg. The punishment of God. The punishment of God. God summarizes here in, Jer in Isaiah 13 verse 11, his posture against human wickedness. Listen to what he says here in verse 11, Isaiah 13. I, the Lord, will punish the world. Notice, that's very general, the world. It's not like, okay, this particular people group, they're more sinful than others, and so I'm just going to punish them. No, no, everyone, he says. For what? For their evil. For its evil and the wicked for their sin. Or you could turn to Romans chapter 2, verse 8. Here's the apostle Paul. He says, God will pour out his anger and wrath. And so he's going to pour it out. So think deluge. Think Noah's flood. 
think a flood of judgment, a tidal wave of judgment from God on those who live for themselves. That's really the essence of sin, just living for oneself, even though God has blessed you with amazing things, you just take his gifts and run. That's the essence of sin. And he, gets, he says, who refuse to obey the truth and, and instead live lives of wickedness. Or again, you could turn to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 7 through 9. Again, Paul says, Jesus will come. He's going to come again. How is he going to come? Is he come, going to come like a hippie Jesus, you know, giving every human being lollipops? No, no, no. We read, he will come with his mighty angels in flaming fire, bringing judgment on those who don't know God, that's a guilty ignorance, and on those who refuse to obey the good news of our Lord Jesus. They will, here's, here's the sobering part, they will be punished with eternal destruction. That's not annihilationism, by the way, God just snuffing out humanity. That's not a biblical truth. But being destroyed forever, punished forever, and separated from the Lord and from his glorious power. And we could go on citing text after text and passage after passage that communicate the same sobering reality, which is God is holy. And he's put together this world to be a moral world with moral standards and absolutes. And when those moral standards, his moral standards are violated, then there is sure punishment and judgment and retribution. We've got to grasp this truth if we are going to make sense of grace because sometimes we think, oh, maybe God, you're gracious. You, you owe it to people to be generous. No, no, no. The only thing he owes pagan-hearted humans is punishment, not peace. Let's continue the second leg. I know it's a bit depressing, but good news will come. Just like, uh, you know, when you go to a jeweler's and maybe some of you rich guys out there got a diamond ring for your wife-to-be or your spouse, and, and when you did that, the jeweler, what did he do? He took out the black cloth so that he could put that diamond ring on the, the cloth, and, and then the diamond ring stood out all the more on that black background, right? Well, it's the same with the diamond ring of God's grace. When we get the black background, the things that we're looking, these legs of the bed of grace, we go, wow, your grace is really staggering. So here's the third leg then, the powerlessness of man the powerlessness of man. I remember when Kaylee was a tiny tot and we were in the backyard and she must have been about two and it was a beautiful evening and the moon was out and it was a full moon. The moon was always around and little Kaylee said to me, Daddy, can I touch the moon? And I said, go for it. <laughs> she was holding her. So she stretched out with all of her might, little arm, tiny little hand. And of course, she didn't touch the moon. And she looked really disappointed. I says, okay, honey, I'll, I'll, I'll lift you up. She's like, okay, I'll, I'll touch the moon, Daddy. So I, I stretched out my hands, and then she stretched out her hand, and, and of course, she didn't touch the moon. And so I, I got a chair, and I stood on the chair, and I stretched on my tippy toes as I was stretching with her, and she was stretching out her hand to reach the moon, to touch the moon. And of course, she didn't. My point here is that for fallen, pagan-hearted people to touch God, well, they can, it would be more likely for them to actually touch the moon than to touch God with their human efforts. We've got to realize that no amount 
of, of religious activity or social justice or squeaky clean, upright moral living can bridge the infinite chasm that exists between us sinful people and a holy, righteous God. It's an infinite chasm. And we can't reach God through our efforts. The Apostle Paul makes this very clear in Romans 8 verse 3. He says, the law of Moses was unable to save us. And just pause there. The law of Moses, which is one of God's greatest gifts to mankind, by the way. His law and what flows out of law, all these values and wonderful things and the Western world, the, our law is pretty much based and built on the law of Moses. And it's a great gift from God. Still is one of his greatest gifts. Don't let anyone tell you, oh, the, the law is bad. So good to be under grace. No, no, no. The Bible says that the law is good, just, and righteous. However, it was unable to save us. Why? Well, let's continue. Because of the what? The weakness or the powerlessness of our sinful nature. Which means, if this good gift from God, one of his greatest gifts, couldn't rescue human beings because of their sinful hearts, then nothing we put our hands to will save us. We are completely and utterly broken and fallen and powerless to rescue ourselves. And it's not until you realize that, we realize that, will grace become dazzling and wondrous. And so that's the first, third leg on the bed of grace. Here's number four, the prerogative of God. The prerogative of God. Don't worry, I'm not going to sing that song. It's my prerogative. You know the song? I'm not going to sing it. This is a serious sermon. I'm not going to sing up here. <laughs> what I mean by the prerogative of God is that it's his absolute sovereign right to extend grace or not to extend grace. We've got to feel that before we can believe in grace, really. That he's not under compulsion to love human beings. Sometimes we can think that. And yet, as I've said, the only thing he owes humanity is judgment, justice, not kindness. The French philosopher was absolutely wrong when he arrogantly said on his deathbed, it's okay, God will forgive me, it's his job. No, it's not. It's not his job to forgive. It's his job to uphold moral standards, his moral absolutes, which means judgment for us, not kindness. As Jayapaka said, he's now with the Lord, but in his classic spiritual work, Knowing God, he writes this, only when it is seen that what decides each each individual's destiny is whether or not God resolves or chooses to save him or her from their sins, and that this is a decision which God need not make in any single case. You feeling it? You receiving that? Can one begin to grasp the biblical view of grace? No one holds a gun to God's head and says, okay, I'll hold you to ransom. You've got to give me mercy. You've got to give me grace. No, Romans 9, verses 15 and 16, hits this point out of the park when it says, I will show mercy to anyone I choose. 
and I will show compassion to anyone I choose. So, in summary, he says in verse 16, it is God who decides to show mercy. We can neither choose it nor work for it. And so grace is his prerogative. He can extend it or he can choose to keep it to himself. There's the bed of grace, the, the legs now in place. What are the four Ps? The pagan heart of man, the punishment of God, the powerlessness of man, and the prerogative of God. Now, once we have this framework, we can now arrive at a biblical definition of grace. Many ways to define grace, but here's my attempt at describing the indescribable, pretty much. This is my stab at it. God's grace is his unwarranted, unsought, unearned, unattracted love or kindness or put whatever nice word you want to put in there, given to those who are hell deserving. That's it. That's it. <laughs> it's his unwarranted. We don't deserve it. We've seen that in this message. It's unsought. No one has really sought God for God's sake. Unearned. You can't, you can't win it from God through your morality or your religious enterprise. It's unattracted, which means that there was nothing in us that drew God's heart to us. It's not like God before creation thought, <laughs> Robert, he's, he's such a nice guy. The saying, so cute. So, no, no, no. There was none of that. We were fallen as we've seen. This grace originated with God, his goodness. The moon's always round. God is always good. And this grace, and here's the good part, flows to us along the river that is Jesus. And this is the greatest news in all the world. And this is why Christianity is so remarkable because of grace. Because look, we're thinking about the prerogative of God. He doesn't need to extend grace. But listen, he has definitively, comprehensively, wonderfully extended grace, expressed grace in the person of Jesus twice in the opening chapter of John's gospel which is really a Christmas chapter, we're told that God, the Son of God, became like us, and he came what? Full of what? What's the word? You're allowed to speak. Full of? Twice. John's making a point. Full of grace. There's a little bit of grace, but full, the full embodiment of God's grace, the perfect eternal personification of grace, which means that Jesus is the only oasis of life in the desert of corrupt, fallen humanity. He's the only oasis. Everything else is just dry and arid and dead. He's the oasis the locus of God's grace. Amazing. So there you have it, the bed of grace. Now, that, we, we're thinking about the definition of grace and how Jesus is the one who expresses grace. He embodied grace perfectly. I think now we can arrive at our second main consideration about grace, and it's this. I'm calling it the faces of grace. Now, this is where the sermon just starts to lift off now, right? It's been in a pretty depressing place so far, but now it's going to lift and you're going to be really encouraged, hopefully. If you're not encouraged, I better give up. All right, so here we go. The faces of grace. In the Bible, in the New Testament, we have various expressions or types or images of grace that intersect with every part of life. 
there, there are many, but I'm going to highlight six of them. And you, you don't have to frantically take notes. I'm going to move through this material quite quickly. And so just sit down, put your pens down, just relax and enjoy God's grace, okay? So here we go. Here's the first face of grace. It's the grace of forgiveness. Jesus, as Tim wonderfully put it in the communion message, Jesus carried the cross in order to carry our sin so that we could experience the radical, comprehensive, total forgiveness of God. The total forgiveness. Which means, and this is mind-blowing, that when you put faith in Jesus and it's sincere, you give your allegiance to him, immediately you are completely forgiven. Past, present, future sin. All your past wrongdoings under the blood of Jesus. All your present wrongdoings, the things that we still do that grieve the heart of God and should grieve ours, under the blood of Jesus. All our future wrongdoings, all the things that we will do wrong as Christians are under the blood of Jesus. When Jesus on the cross said, it is finished, he meant that. There's an exclamation mark after that statement of Jesus. And when this grips our hearts, that we are completely, totally, comprehensively forgiven, that's such a power in your life. Because who knows, we still have to deal with sin, right? Or is it just me? And you can only, listen, you can only successfully fight against sin and overcome sin when you believe that that sin that you're fighting to overcome has already been forgiven. Did you get that? If you think in your mind, okay, I've got to overcome this sin, whether it be anxiety or lust or anger, the list goes on, in order to be forgiven by God, you've screwed up Christianity. We've lost it because we've already been forgiven that sin, which ought to be the impetus and the motivation and the drive to say, I can fight against this thing knowing I've already been forgiven and accepted by God. What a, you look unsure. Well, that's the beauty of grace. That's the wonder of grace. And so that's the first face, the grace of forgiveness. Secondly, the grace of acceptance. God not only forgives. You know, he could have just forgave us and that, that's it, and kept us at arm's length. Could have. But, but the reason why he forgave was to embrace, to, to bring us home to adopt us. So now in Jesus, this is the most wonderful thing. We are the adopted children of God. May that truth never be lost on us. That we are his sons and daughters and Jesus is our elder brother and we're all together in this wonderful family of God and, and, and God now is no longer our judge but our heavenly father. It's amazing. The grace of acceptance, I love what one writer, one biblical counselor, Paul Tripp, says about this, this grace of acceptance, listen to this. He says, we can sit now on his lap, God's lap, and bring our needs, our concerns, and failures to him. And he responds as a loving and kind father. Wow. Are you enjoying the lap of God? Sitting on his lap. Your concerns, things that weigh you down, the frustrations, failures, sin. He doesn't keep us at arm's length. He responds. Wow. The grace of acceptance. The third face, the grace of his presence. Because of grace, and we've seen this already in this series, 
Our Heavenly Father is never distant, but always present with us. In fact, and, and this is mind-blowing, this is, this is crazy, the Bible affirms that God so wanted to be with us, his people, that he, as it were, unzipped us, zip, to be in us by his Holy Spirit. That's exactly what it means to be filled with the Spirit. That God has unzipped us so that he could live within us. Talk about close. And this is a game changer when we receive this truth into our minds and hearts. When we go through life's difficulties, God is not only there with us, that's true, but he's within us. He's within us as our amazing king, our amazing savior, the grace of his presence. Number four, the grace of enablement. Again, God is simply not content to give us and grant us salvation and then just leave us all alone until eternity. He's so passionately committed to be there with us, to enable us so that we can actually be more like his son. He's radically committed to that. He gives us the enabling grace and the power to wage war against sin as we're going to see. And he gives us the enabling power to do the very things that he's called us to do in order to extend his kingdom. God never calls us to do things which he doesn't also back with his almighty presence and power. When he calls us to do something, he will go there and be there with us. But he's also within us, giving us the enabling grace to actually carry out that particular thing, which is awesome news. So what has God called you to? Well, he will give you his enabling grace to fulfill that thing. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and you can make this true of your own experience, you can apply this promise to your life. The Apostle Paul says, but whatever I am now, it is all because God poured out his special favor on me. Doesn't that sound similar to Romans 2.8? God pouring out, but this time, because we're in Christ the one who absorbed the judgment of God, the tidal wave of judgment fell on him. So now in Christ, we can experience the poured out favor of God. And he says, and this favor was not without results. For I've worked harder than all the other apostles, yet it was not I. He kind of backs up, he corrects himself. But God, who was working through me by his grace, let's lean on God. What has he called you to do? Lean on him so that you may experience his empowering presence. Number five, the grace of freedom. I love this. A part of God's enabling grace is its force, supernatural force and ability to free us continually, perpetually from the addictive power of sin. Now, how many of your hands up going, amen, I need that? All right, thanks, Luke. Why are you going, man? I need your hand raised every sermon. Hey, hey, I see your hand. My eyes are bad. I can't see you from up here. Listen to what Paul says here in Titus 2. He says, For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. That's, that's the personification. That's Christ here coming, offering salvation to all people. He doesn't discriminate. If you, if you acknowledge your sin, you can, you can come home to God. But there's a... Internal power as well of this grace. In verse 12, we read it, namely grace, teaches us to say what? No. No to what? To ungodliness and worldly passions. But it also teaches us to say yes. It's not in the text. I'm just adding it. Yes to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. I really believe if Paul here, he would say, 
there's absolutely no reason for any of you, the children of God, to ever give in to sin. You know, I was in my office the other day, and out of nowhere, it, from the devil, of course, but I was just doing my thing, minding my own business, all of a sudden, this overwhelming temptation co- came over me. And so I, I was enveloped by it. And I was like, what am I going to do? And so, you know what I did? I, I'm not sure if some of your parents have listened to Colin Buchanan's song, Shooting Up an Arrow Prayer. Who's with me? Oh, no. It's one of those sermons. Hey, thank you, Andy. I knew Andy would know that song. He knows every kid's song. So, an arrow prayer, right? There was no shambarumbas, who stole my Honda kind of prayers going on. It was just a quick arrow-like prayer. Just, Lord, help me. I'm tempted to help me. I just approached the throne of grace, and guess what? Immediately, the temptation dissipated. Just, just left me. This is the grace of freedom. His enabling grace. There's this throne of grace. And God, when we're tempted, says, you come, my son. You, you come, my child. You come, my daughter. You come to me. But tragically, often, what do we do? We stay away in shame. We stay away in fear. We don't run and shoot up these arrow prayers. And when we do, his grace is there because the promise of Hebrews 4 is that when we come to the throne of grace in our time of need, he will give us that mercy and the grace that we need. This is available to all of us. This amazing grace of freedom. Number six, lastly, the grace of completion. I love this. There will be a day when you and I will finally and fully be who we were supposed to be, who God created us originally to to be. One day when Christ comes back and he sets up a brand new shop, right? He makes all things brand spanking, pearly new. There will no more be any struggles, no sin, no sickness, no COVID. Nothing that will owl us, nothing that will get us down, nothing that will cause us to be anxious or frustrated or feeling lonely. He's going to eradicate all those things. And the promise is God is absolutely, by his grace, committed to bringing us safely home to himself. Remember what Jesus said? I'm going to prepare a place for you, and I'm going to do that, and then I'm going to come back and take you where I am. Philippians 1.6 says that he who began a good work in you, you finish it, will bring it to what? Completion, the grace of completion until the day of Jesus Christ. What a remarkable grace that he hasn't finished yet in your life, in my life. He's radically dedicated to bringing us safely home. And when we really believe that, wow, again, it's a game changer. We're given fresh hope, which is, our strength. And so in my mind, this is why grace is the most appealing word, because of the grace of forgiveness, the grace of acceptance, the grace of his presence, the grace of enablement, the grace of freedom, and the grace of completion. Last thing here I want to say about grace, and maybe it's the pressing question, it's this. How do you actually tap into it? Like, how do you taste it? And go on tasting grace and receiving and experiencing this grace that we've been exploring in this message. Well, the Bible says two main things, real brief. Number one, and this is a dirty word in our culture, we need to surrender. 
I need to surrender. You mean I've got to give up my own personal autonomy? Jesus said, as Tim said in the sermon, in his communion message, yes. You've got to die to self. And when you do, for me and the gospel's sake, he says, then you will experience life. James, the apostle James, says something very similar. In James 4, verse 6, he says, and God gives grace generously. However, there's a condition. As the scriptures say, he continues to say, God opposes the proud, but gives this generous, liberal, freeing grace to the humble. In verse 7, he summarizes by saying, so, come on, humble yourselves before God. This means in practice that we stop hiding from God. We stop playing hide and seek. You know what Adam and Eve did when they sinned against God? They played hide and seek. They hid behind the trees. Where are you, Adam? And we can do that when we sin. And God just wants us to come out into the open and fess up. I think the world would have turned out a lot differently if Adam would have done that, by the way. Because he started to shift the blame, right? That was her fault. And she's like, it's his fault. And yet, if they would have just come out and said, I'm in need of you. I've I've screwed up big time. And and I just humble myself before you. I, I think the world would have turned out completely different. Because as we're promised here, God gives this liberal, lavish grace to those who humble themselves. And so this is to be the posture of our lives perpetually. We just surrender, surrender, surrender. Again, Paul Tripp, this biblical counselor, he writes this. He says, if you convince yourself that your problem is in your relationships, your location, or your situation, listen, you'll quit seeking grace. And you'll try to find an easy way out. And that easy way out will always be a dead end. Your number one problem is not outside of you, it's inside of you. It's inside of me. And the more we realize that, the more humility, I think, we will express and we'll surrender to God. Yeah, this is is an issue. This location is an issue. This situation is an issue. He or her, yeah, they're, they're, they're an issue too. Yeah, yeah, but mainly the main issue is with me. And so I'll humble myself before you. And when you do that, God pours in grace upon grace upon grace. Secondly, we are to submerge, meaning for us to experience grace in an ongoing way, we need to submerge our lives beneath the fountains of grace. Our forefathers and foremothers called this the means of grace, fancy term. It simply means God has channels. You ever been to Raging Waters or Wet and Wild? Yeah? Yeah, thanks Andy, Andy again. And there's that awesome ride, you know, the, the racer ride? And I think it's like eight lanes, eight water slides. But they what? They all, they go different, shoot, they shoot off in different directions, but they all come to the same place, right? It's kind of like that with a means of grace. There are different slides, as it were, but, but at the end, you, you come and you're blessed and you're restored and you're strengthened by God. Well, well, there are various means of grace that when we surrender to and give our lives to these means of grace, then we're strengthened and energized. And so, for example, some of these means of grace are praying, just saying no to hurry and no to busyness, just putting pause on the to-do list for a while and just sit and to soak and to recline in God. And that's a channel of grace. Or as we looked at in our previous sermon series, Community, that's a massive means of grace. So, so many Christians forfeit this means of grace. Like, I'm just going to do it solo. It's just Jesus and me. That, that's not God's intention. 
It's, it's Jesus and us doing life together, being open, confessing sin to one another, being transparent and encouraging one another. That's a massive means of grace and we'll be strengthened as a result. Or singing, fasting, or Bible memorization. Don't worry, I'm not gonna sing the song that I sung last week. These are means of grace. And the Lord just calls us, come on, let's submerge our minds and our hearts beneath these fountains of grace. I'll conclude with this. The posture we need to take up is the posture that Mary took up. Mary, when Jesus was there in her lounge room, here's the personification embodiment of pure eternal grace in her lounge room. And she chose the better way. She just sat there, absorbing, absorbing, receiving, receiving. Martha, on the other hand, she was doing good. She was doing good, but she was in the kitchen. She was too busy working for Jesus. Whereas, whereas, whereas Mary was just enjoying Jesus. This is the posture we're to take. We're to sit more at his feet. Yeah, there's things to do. He's called us to do many things. But when we just sit receiving, receiving his grace, submerging ourselves beneath these founders of grace, then we'll be given the impetus and the strength and the motivation to go and do these various things that God has called us to do. The reason why some Christians flourish more than others is not because of their temperament or their giftedness, but because time after time after time, they've chosen to sit at the Savior's feet and absorb and receive and drink from him. Amen? So let's do that. Let's tune in now to one of God's channels of grace as we reflect on what we've just been taught from God's word. Father, thank you, Lord. grace sweet the sound that save a wretch like me Lord I pray that grace would not be lost on any of us but Lord God we'll rediscover the wonder of grace and we'll all come back to our first love no doubt there are people here who once sat at the feet of Jesus they enjoyed being a Mary but just of late, maybe for quite some time, they've been Martha's, busy, busy, busy in the kitchen. Lord, would you give them the grace? Your grace is so here for them, to restore them, to cleanse them, to forgive them, and to draw them back to yourself where they experience this first love all over again. God, you're so good. Thank you for your amazing grace. Lord, may we be carriers of this grace to this broken world. The moon is always round. God is always good. Amen. Bless you, church. Thank you for listening to the Parramatta Christian Church podcast. To hear other sermons or to find out more about our church, please visit our website at pcc.org.au.